Good evening again, everybody. I'm sure you can appreciate it. it was a huge privilege to be involved in that particular baptism, but actually all of the baptisms that we were involved in today, all different stories, actually. If you were here this morning, you'll know that. Ellen referred back to them. If you want to listen to the message online, you can get a feel for that, get a feel for just the variety of ways people find their way into this faith thing in Jesus Christ. We have this one-size-fits-all Jesus, but we're not all one size. And uh, we're all a variety of different shapes and sizes in every sense, and yet we can find a way in. And we've seen that today, and great to celebrate it. Thank you, too, if you've been praying for our family. And please go on praying for our family. We feel the kind of benefit of that today. Um, I just want to kind of lay aside a kind of a myth that our family is perfect, if you were feeling that, (laughs) because we're absolutely not. And we depend on your... um, prayer every day and we depend on Jesus's forgiveness. I, I just say that because some, when I mentioned that Alex was getting baptised and people knew Zoe had been baptised already, people just, just someone, a friend of mine described it as the frosting on the cherry on the icing on the cake that is my life. <laughs> Which is simply not true if you knew what goes on behind closed doors in our own house. And um, we're dependent on your prayers and we pray for you. And it isn't a question of anybody getting one thing right or not. It's just not like that in the mystery of God. We're, we're, we're blessed and we're praying that we're all blessed. So I want to read a couple of things and then pick up some lessons from the artist Lowry. Some of you know I'm into golf. I'm not picking Lowry who won the British Open last week. I'm p- picking Lowry from a few years back who uh, was known for a painter of this sort of thing. But first of all, to the Bible and a couple of readings from 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2 and from verses uh, 1 to 4, say this. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. And in the same chapter, a few verses later, from verse 13, says, And we also thank God continually. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews." Like I say, it's a great privilege to be involved in this service today, as I'm sure you understand, but it is not my intention to preach just to Alex or in particular, in any particular way to embarrass him. Sorry if that disappoints family and friends. It's not to say I won't embarrass him, it's just not my intention to do so. I haven't tried to create a sermon in a kind of trendy rap, Alex, that is kind of dad thing that would be, with all the lack of cool a dad can muster. I haven't done that. I haven't looked back in our photo albums and chosen some pictures to slide through of you as a baby. I haven't done any of those things. I I'm not going to tell an embarrassing moment story. Um, again, apologies to family and friends if that's what you came for. But what I want to do is to pick up something relevant to a baptism day. 
which today has been uh, not just this service, but the morning service, as we've said already, if you were part of that and if, if you weren't, but also fits our summer series. Now, we've just started this series, and it will work as a one-off if you're just here this Sunday. We're picking things from the media, from the arts, from culture, and we're trying to have a Christian perspective on them and to see if there's an illustration in them, if they speak to our culture, and therefore we want to know what the Bible says about that, if there's something we need to challenge, or if there's something we need to learn from. And I just think there's an illustration, a couple of illustrations, in the artist Lowry. It's a little unusual that we're doing this in this summer series, but as long as we're giving priority to the Bible, I think we can learn from it. So last week we picked a film, the Oscar-winning best uh, film this year, Green Book, and today this painting, and hence the title, Lowry Lessons. Now this insight came from a trip where I was with Alex and with my wife Sue too, um, in Liverpool, where Alex is studying, and we were in Tate, Liverpool, which some of you have been to. We often go to galleries as a family, but we have different approaches when we are there. We have different tastes in art, and in particular, we have different approaches when there is a guide who explains things. When someone stands and explains a piece of work, the rest of my family make themselves scarce. But I quite like that. So I look around and I find that all of a sudden I'm on my own. The rest of the family have left me. So we're in Tate, Liverpool. It's a great space if you ever get a chance to. And we're standing in front of this painting. And it was about one o'clock, I think. And there's a sign by uh, this painting saying that a guide is going to give a talk. It was about 10 to 1. A guide is going to give a talk at one o'clock. So I, I'm really up for that. The rest of my family are not, and they make themselves scarce, which is totally fine. It turns out that they're not the only ones who make themselves scarce. So one o'clock comes, Philip, the guide, comes to give the talk, and altogether, there were two of us. <laughs> Me and Philip. So, so Philip asked the audience the question. He asked, them, he asked the audience um, what we know about this painting. So I look at it, and I say, well... It's, it's a Lowry, and uh, there's a big sign saying Lowry, but I'm, I'm going to what I know, and I, I, know, I know almost nothing about Lowry, but I say what I know, which is, um, well, I know that Lowry painted other things. He did do some portraits and, and things, but this is what he was known for, kind of um, uh, landscapes of city-type pictures in a particular era with those little caricatures that we call matchstick men and matchstick cats and dogs and, and all of that. That's what I said. I was pretty pleased with it. Philip was less impressed. <laughs> so he looked at, at me, and uh, he started off with just me. And, uh, but the crowd grew as he began to explain things, because he was so engaging. So by the end, there was probably 20 of us. He told me, to begin with, and then all of us, that this is and was one of Lowry's biggest paintings. It's not actually that big, but it's one of Lowry's biggest paintings. That it's typical of him in that it's not a real scene, but it's got some real elements in it. That it was a commissioned painting, and that that's pretty unusual. It's relatively uh, unusual for Lowry to do that. Most of his life, he didn't earn from painting, not a great deal. But towards the end, he was commissioned to do one or two things. And on and on and on he went. And as he began to speak more, what was really clear to me was his passion for the subject. It was infectious. And he kind of enjoyed it. And people came and gathered, and they enjoyed it too. 
And so what I want to do this evening briefly is to pick up four lessons that are relevant for a baptism service, but I hope are relevant for all of us. They relate to Lowry, but one of them actually relates to Philip, the guide, um, which I think we can learn from too. And they're relevant to our readings, Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica, and to our series, Culture Watch. So let's look at this painting a little bit more closely. The picture is typical of the panoramic cityscapes that Lowry painted, I learned, throughout his career. Uh, although it's a made-up picture, there are some recognisable elements in it. So in the sort of top left-hand corner, there's a viaduct, that Stockport viaduct. Lowry really liked that. He painted it in lots and lots uh, of his paintings. But on the whole, the image represents a kind of generalist or generalised impression of a kind of northern town or city, dominated by smoking chimneys and factories and roads and bridges and industrial wasteland. But then what he does is to emphasise the human bit, hence this bold red colour at the bottom and some people right at the front of the picture in the foreground, almost inviting the viewer to kind of join in this small group of people who are going about their business. As he spoke, the first lesson for me from this, and I hope for you too, is of someone who is just passionate about their subject. When he was speaking, the painting's just here, he could point at things without looking at it. He knew this painting that well. You know, this chimney here and, and, and that building there. I referred to the church, asked about it. He went, oh, well, that church there. You know, he could do that without looking at the painting. That's how well he knew it. He told us that for more than 40 years, um, Lowry worked as a rent collector for a company called the Pall Mall Property Company. Um, in 1910, aged about 23, he became a clerk and then a rent collector for them. People called him a part-time painter. He didn't like that. People called him a Sunday painter. He said, I'm a Sunday painter who paints every day of the week. So when he got in from work, he'd paint. People said that maybe he wasn't trained, but that's far from true. He did evening classes and he just happened to stumble upon an evening class from a really well-known impressionist at the time called Vallette. And he said, I can't overestimate the effect that this person had on me. So the thing that grabbed me in this first lesson isn't really about Lowry. It's about the guide, you see. It's about Philip. My picture's of teachers, of one particular teacher. And you know that if you've had a passionate teacher who's passionate about their subject, how infectious that is. Our reading in 1 Thessalonians, um, they say that when the gospel came to you, Paul says, it came not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. My question to you is, if you have a faith, are you prepared to talk about it with deep conviction? That means a kind of assurance. You heard that in what Alex says, I think. And then it goes on to say, we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. Alex talked about people who, those first disciples, who were so confident of what they had in Jesus that they were prepared to go on saying in the face of such opposition that that many of them, most of them, paid the cost of their lives for it. But that phrase, we dared to tell you the gospel, what it literally means is we chatted the gospel to you. Philip could chat Lowry. You can chat about something that's passionate 
for you that you're passionate about. If Phil can do that in Tate Liverpool, can you do that about the saviour of the world, your Lord and saviour? Can you chat Jesus? If not, why not? And what do we need to do to change? Because we can chat about the things that we are concerned about, that we're interested in, that we're passionate about. And Philip wasn't put off by my lack of knowledge at the beginning. He started where I was. You can look at something, like a painting, and you cannot be aware of some of the details of it, some of the things that are going on, until someone who is passionate explains it to you. I benefited from that. Our friends can look at the universe and the world and the bit of the world that they live in and not understand some of the nuances of it. And as somebody who's passionate about the creator God of the universe and the saviour of the world, explains a bit about where he leaves hints and markers of the master's artwork in the created universe. Can we chat about Jesus? The second thing I want us to consider is that, so that's chatting the gospel, is that some of the things that appear to be random in a Lowry painting are not. Some of the electric wiring system. If you don't know about electrics and you look at all the wires, they can appear random, but they're not. Like I say, Larry was, uh, worked as a rent collector for most of his life after leaving school at age 16. And... Um, oh, yeah, I'll come back to that. Let me go back to the painting. And these people that we just think of as matchstick characters matchstick men and matchstick cats and dogs, they're real characters, almost all of them. They're people he knew. They're people he collected rent from. They're people who lived on the streets that he knew. They're they're not just random. And the emphasis on cats and dogs is because he wasn't allowed a pet when he was younger. So he liked having pets in his pictures because it meant something to him. Our faith is like that too. The things that you think are random are not. And the more that you trust a great artist, the more you trust that some of the things which seem random are not. And that's important. And the more I learn about our Lord, the more I find that the things that I don't quite understand, I can trust. Alex talked about that too. So back to our reading. Paul presents the gospel to them. And the second reading says that he was bold enough to do that, even having faced some opposition from where he came from. And they receive it. That was the bit I was highlighting. I didn't want to get to just yet. I just want to pick up some words because this is the journey of faith, really. They receive the word because somebody gave it to them. Then having received this word about Jesus, they accepted it. And then having accepted the word of Jesus, it says that they believe it. And, And I'd like to leave it there. But actually what it goes on to say is that they suffered for it. And he explains that that's actually part of the deal, mostly for a lot of us for a lot of the time and we shouldn't be surprised when that happens I also want to say in this painting that I learned that some of the things that look like mistakes are not it's easy to pick up on some things that aren't in proper perspective it's easy to look up um, some things that look bigger than they should be, some things that look smaller than they should be. But when you learn about Larry, you learn that he didn't paint it in order and he, just, he had his own order of priority. 
So I asked about a church, because I could see a little church there, and he, I said he rarely paints churches, I knew that much. And he said, yeah, no, he, he, had a, he had a bad experience at church, so when he did, he painted them much smaller than they actually are, he said. And, and, and what he was interested in was painting what nobody else was painting. So other people were painting churches, and they were painting countrysides, and they were making everything look beautiful, and he wasn't into that. He was into painting things in a kind of rough and ready way. It, it just captured him. He came home on a train journey, saw an industrial scene, and it captured him as a beautiful thing that nobody had ever captured before, and he knew that's what he wanted to do. So some of the things that look like mistakes are not. They're, they're, they're deliberate, um, and they're part of his plan. There's a, people think he had like a sense of humour, so all the smoke and all the wind is going that way, but people think he deliberately put the smoke in the train going that way, just as a bit of humour for some people to, to see if they were watching that closely. If you really trust an artist, then the fact that a church looks a bit smaller, that some of the things in the midground are bigger than some of the things in the foreground, you trust that he's doing that for a reason and you want to trust that reason. So, so what's going on in our reading? Paul's wanting to explain that what has happened to the church in Thessalonica and what happened in Philippi looks like it might be random, but it isn't random, that we, that we can trust it. You can read about the story of Paul in Thessalonica in Acts 17, but it says that Paul visited Thessalonica. It was a bustling commercial seaport on his second mission trip, along with his companions, Silas and Timothy. But he was also there because he'd been thrown out of Philippi. And he said outrageously in his reading or some, in that reading or some words like that. And that wasn't random either because actually his trip to Philippi was a success and some people were baptised there, which is appropriate to remember today. And when he got to Thessalonica, because he's been thrown out of Philippi, um, he followed his normal pattern. He preached in the synagogue and a number of Jews as well as some, some Gentiles and some prominent women accepted the gospel. Unfortunately, that visit was cut short as well. Probably less than a month in, Paul was hounded out of that city too by the Jewish opposition. But amazingly, having been there that short time, by the time he goes, there's a start of a church there. So Paul needs to write to this church. This, that's what the letter is that we have. And fill in some of the details and fill in some of their misunderstandings. So he fills in some misunderstandings about when Jesus will return. That comes up later in the letter. He urges them to live a life well as believers, to live in Christian community, to give further instruction about godly living. That's what he does to them. He encourages them to press on, to keep going with this faith thing that they've started. And his prayer for them was that they would become all that they ought to be in character and conduct. So I think this letter is good for a day like today. Think about what we're celebrating today to urge people to go on living as believers in Christian community, to press on and not give up, and to pray that they would become all that they ought to be in character and conduct. The last thing I want to pick up on in this painting, and therefore we're learning from this cultural thing, is that some things that look like nothing in a painting are far from it. And this was the bit I, I think I liked the most in Philip's explanations and his stories. By now, 20 or so, or, or, or maybe a few more, have gathered to hear him say this. And maybe he left it towards the end, I don't, I don't know. 
like I say, Lowry had the sense of humour, so he, he put, maybe put the smoke going the wrong way. But he also he painted a white canvas before he painted anything, but he knew that the white canvas would fade in the sun, like before some of the other bits of the painting. So he painted some of his matchstick men and women before he painted the white canvas. So that as the white faded, some new characters appeared. And nobody would have known about it before. And it might be after he died. And he just liked that. He liked the idea that people would look at the painting every day and then come back a year later and go, was that person there? I don't remember that person being there. And he had done it just because he could. Some of the things that look like nothing are not. He liked to catch people by surprise. When he died, he left almost all of his fortune to Carol Ann Lowry. The interesting thing about that is she wasn't family. She was this girl, to begin with, who was 13, who lived in the same sort of part of the north of England as he did, who, with, his, with her mum's encouragement, wrote to him and said, oh, I'm quite interested in art. And, and we've got the same surname. Would you come and explain some art to me? So he got on a bus, turned up at her house, and, and formed a friendship with the family and started explaining art to her. And they formed this friendship. And he said that he would um, leave a few things to her, but he left pretty much everything. She said, he told me he would leave me his piano and his sideboard, and that's what I thought I would get. I don't know why he left it all to me, she said, when he died. Some of the things that look like nothing are not anyway in Lowry paintings. Lowry paintings are the opposite of our modern Instagrammed, Pinterested, beautifully dressed photo world. If somebody had no shoes, he painted them with no shoes. If everybody else said paint uh, a beautiful cathedral, he painted an industrial scene and left the church tiny. He was pick picking up other things that other people miss. So too in our reading and in our faith, where Jesus picks up on the little and the last and the lost and the least. The letter to 1 Thessalonians is trying to offer encouragements and challenges and truths and warn us that there's hard work and encourage us to keep on, to keep going. So then, to conclude, last week I mentioned the film Green Book and a number of you have since seen the film Green Book and messaged me about it, which is in encouraging. This week, I'm not particularly expecting us all to go to Liverpool, to take Liverpool and to see this picture. Though you can if you want, it's on Dockside Level 1. If you get up there, it's on the left-hand side. Go and have a look at it, see if Philip's still giving the guide. But I'm not expecting you to do that. But I do think there are some takeaway thoughts for us if we're doing this culture watch thing. You could go to any gallery and see somebody who's enthusiastic about this subject, or you may know somebody in your work setting who's enthusiastic about the subject. From that, can we learn about being passionate? Can we chat about our saviour? Can we chat about Jesus? Because that's what Paul says he did to the church in Thessalonica in a natural way that fits for us. Maybe the main thing, though, is trust. Can we trust with our master, so much more than a painting master, that things are done for a reason? that things that look like mistakes are not? Can we know that we'll always go on discovering new things? Can we expect surprises along the way?
Which of these things are your takeaway thoughts for today? I'll reflect them back in just a moment. Let me invite the band up to lead us in our final song, and I'll lead us in some prayer first. So we're going to sing, Here I Am to Worship, um, Light of the World. A song, if you come here regularly, or some other churches, you'd know, I'm guessing. Can we offer it as a kind of reflection back of um, our response? And is our response, here's some options, this challenge, can we passionately chat about Jesus like it's our favourite subject? Because he's our favourite subject. In a natural way. Can we trust that things that seem like a mistake are not, even if we haven't yet seen the answer to them yet. Can we know that we will learn more? Can we be up for surprises? Because a master will give us surprises along the way. Let's stand together. And so as we sing, here I am to worship, Lord, you know what our response is or isn't. We give them to you. Um, guide us as we sing. Go on speaking to us, please. Uh, help us to be people who passionately chat Jesus, who trust, who are up for learning more, who are up for surprises. We think of the four people who've been baptised today and we pray your blessing and protection on them and their ongoing journey. We pray for them as we pray for ourselves. Amen. Amen.